wedding, Jim. But not as we know it. How dare you? It is 21 minutes to 2pm on Thursday the 23rd of November 2023 and you are listening to The Bashcast. Coming up. In this afternoon's Bashcast, we are joined by John Roberts from Predictology. The data service officially ranked one spot higher than Bookie Bashing in the Best Data Resource category at the 2023 SBC Betting Awards. That may make them our sworn enemies, but as the saying goes, gaslight all your friends and keep your enemies closer. In this episode, we discuss I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, the skill sets for beating the markets, logistics of reliable odds collection, modelling football, historical trending, pre-match versus in-play edges, and the all-important 2023 Bashcast Christmas Quiz. You may have thought that you'd already heard Bashcast episode 211. I am here to gaslight you by telling you, no you haven't, this is Bashcast episode 211. So uh, we're going to be joined this week uh, by John Roberts over at Predictology, so we can have a chat with somebody. It's not just me rambling on, as usual. Um, uh, are you there, John? I am indeed, Tom. Great to be here, and uh, yeah, looking forward to our chat today. But where is here? Well, very good question. Here is, at this moment in time, uh, Manila in the Philippines. In the not Philippines? Usual, uh, local, usual location, I don't believe. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, crikey. I've never been there, but um, uh, I would love to visit. Um, well, you're you, welcome anytime, um, there, So there's a thing going on just now over in the UK. and I, I, Obviously, you're in the Philippines. I very much doubt you watch I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. I can't say I've watched that in a number of years. <laughs> Have you been following the story that's happened there this week? I wish I had, but I have no, no idea. <laughs> right. So I don't know if this is just me. And this is why I want to ask you. Yeah. Because um, I've been at home with the kids all day and I haven't been able to talk to any other grown-ups. So I, I want somebody else's opinion. There's this lady on I'm a Celebrity, which is closer to you because they're in Australia in the jungle mm. than it is to me, right? Yeah. And her name is Nella Rose. Um, have you heard of Nella Rose? I have not. I'm not doing very well, no, am I? <laughs> me neither, though. Don't worry about that. She is a 26-year-old social media TikTok influencer who talks about beauty products. So you get a pass for not knowing who she is. Yeah, you've um, already said about five of my least favorite words in one sentence there, I think. <laughs> right. I, I definitely feel like I'm out of touch already. But okay, <laughs> obviously, because she's in I'm a Celebrity, some mm-hmm. the youth know about her and she's not Indeed. my demographic as a middle-aged man um in fact she's probably the, the opposite but anyway she's in um the jungle and I, I saw a video that was posted um 
where she got into a little bit of an argument. And the argument was with another chap who's called Fred Sirieux, who I think is like a chef. Um, He's a French guy. He's 51 years old. He, um, he, I think he's on a TV program called something to do with dating in the UK. Another person I don't know, but Mm -hmm. he comes across quite well. He's a little bit more my demographic, a little bit closer to my age. And Mm. um, they're just having a chat with each other. And um, he says he's a little bit older than her because he's 51 and she's 26. Mm -hmm. She says, well, you're not that old. And he goes, come on, I'm 51 you're 26, I'm old enough to be your dad, right? Mm-hmm. Th- that's the phrase you used. I'm old enough to be your dad. Now, um, there is a little bit of background to her. She has lost her dad. Um, uh, a lot of people have lost their parents. Maybe it's a little bit raw. But mm-hmm. um, she gets a little bit in a huff with the phrase, I'm old, en- I'm old enough to be your dad. And right. the next day he comes up to her and wants to give her some food and she's not talking to him. And he sort of drills out to um, you know, why aren't you speaking to me? And she turns around and says, we're not friends. You and me are not friends. You said you're old enough to be my dad. You're belittling me. Um, I've lost my dad. You're really insensitive. That's an abusive thing for you to say. Um, I don't want to eat your food. I don't want to be your friend. We are not mates. You are a, a middle-aged man who's got nothing to do with me. You stay over in that side of the camp. I'm going to stay over in this side of the camp. And right. the reason this is kind of blown up is because I think it's showing a generational divide between um, maybe people, I don't know, how how old are you? Can I ask John? Do you mind? Yeah, 44. Yeah, you're my age, right? So I'm 45, you're 44, he's 51. A generational divide between people who um, uh, have come through uh, a period of time where victim mentality um, Mm -hmm. wasn't a thing. I don't think, Mm -hmm. at least if it was, I didn't see it, to this girl who perhaps she is a little bit raw at the passing of her dad, Mm -hmm. but also she's desperate to be the victim in this case. Um, Can you sympathize at all with the fact that people like this are coming through as a different generation and we're the dinosaurs, or do you have any opinion on it whatsoever? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're throwing me the grenade there, haven't you? <laughs> I have, yeah. I, what is going on? So, uh, I, I probably in about ten minutes' time, I'll be cancelled. I guess that's, that's what happens these days, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, speaking from someone who lost their own father at twenty-three, so not too far off their demographic, I mm. can see no um, way of relating or empathising to that kind of a reaction. I think it's two very independent things, you know. Um, a young lady talking to an older man, he's just being, he's sort of just, so I, I, it feels like he's just sort of sitting where the, his line is, you know, he's not looking at her in any other way than being, I'm much older than you. Whereas she somehow twisted that to be related to an entirely different personal matter. And yeah, I think it it feels very much about woe is me and, and, and attention seeking, I think. And I don't want to belittle, the, you know, the personal challenges that she may have faced, but I don't see the relevance to it in this scenario whatsoever. It's interesting you say that. I think I do want to belittle it um, because I think it should be called out. And I was wondering why I would do in that position. Like, do you turn to her and go, oh my God, you need to take some personal responsibility and grow up here? Uh, Because if Mm. you are going to consider, he did literally say, 
I am terribly sorry if I've offended you. But those words alone, you know, I mean, of course, he's in a jungle and there are cameras on him. But those words alone almost mm. allow him to say, oh, well, if you've been offended by something I didn't mean to do, I'm so sorry about it. Whereas I'm like, maybe yeah. you just go, oh, you need to shut up and get over this. Um, yeah. You're right. I though. I mean, you, you can't use. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, look, I mean, I think if, if, the, if the question that you posed to me was uh, how would I respond in that situation, I mean, it'd be, it would be much more in line with what you just sort of painted there. I would just call the spade a spade pretty much on it and be like, what are you on about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think like with my daughter growing up, it's something I've got to sort of drill into her. It's like mm. if, you, if you're just going to carry around the fact that people deserve to give you attention because you're offended, then you're not the stronger person coming through um uh, coming through life i um i had a friend of 20 years um who this year um has been going through a bit of a tough time herself she's lost someone very close to her she has a little mm. bit of a difficult family life and um she accused me of gaslighting her and this hurt me very much one because i had to look up what gaslighting meant in the dictionary and two mm-hmm. i have to look at my own behavior because perhaps you can treat people in a way and you don't and un- you don't recognize you're doing it and i like perhaps the, the generation before us i think are very much set in their ways whereas like it's my way or the highway and mm. i think i can can be a little bit compassionate about if i've made a mistake I want to recognize the mistake that I've made so that I can rectify it for you. Something very good in the poker table, people that lose on the poker table tend to get very emotional and think that guy made the worst call I've ever seen and I've lost money. Whereas the mentality should be that guy made the worst call ever and I lost money, but I'm glad he did it because it was positive EV for me in the long run. So it's two different ways of looking. And if you, you are capable of looking inside you and saying, I've made a mistake. But also if you look inside you and say, I didn't make a mistake, it's important for you to call the person out on that. And that's what I've wanted to do, saying, I don't think I did gaslight you. I think you're in a place that's really, really bad just now. And I sympathize with it. That's, of course, Mm. my friend of 20 years. I'm not a friend of Nella Roses, but uh, I'm not into beauty on TikTok. And I think that's something that's a big difference between IQ and EQ, so emotional intelligence. And I think that's something the generation that we're referring to here doesn't really have. Um, and if I go back to my days of working in agencies and corporates, you know, you deal with people in different backgrounds, different personalities, different generational things. But and as a manager, you have to be able to adapt and, and get the best from people. But what this generation, yeah, and yeah. it's interesting. And so when I was last week, I was in Thailand uh, seeing a friend and doing a little bit of uh, work with one of our developers. And we went out for dinner and there was a lad there who was, what did I say? somewhere between 28 and 30 so probably still in this sort of this gap that we're talking about yeah. and he was so the of gen- generation x yeah yeah and as the evening progresses his his, his personality and his behavior became all the more i don't want to say offensive but actually i will say offensive because by the end of the yeah. evening a few pints in he said some incredibly offensive things which i will not repeat here but it was so belligerent and generalized and so factually incorrect it, it was sort is of this just, about was he talking about sort of his um uh, views on society as a whole or views on older people or views of people in the office that were it was basically was it? a catch-all um description of all expat children and what their parental family 
scenario was. Let's put it like that. So, okay, high risk subject, by the way. Very easy to offend people for real in that because yeah. I can imagine expats go abroad and they're like, Have I done the best for my children? So, you've got to be careful in that area. <laughs> yes. So, this he was sitting around a table with three expats, all married with children. Um, and was basically describing us. And what made it even worse, and this is, I think, which, which shows this lack of self this awareness that this generation has, mm. he himself is an expat child. So he had a Thai mother and a yeah. British father. So he was effectively describing himself while describing it in a way that was supposed to be de- uh, derogatory to, well, basically anybody. <laughs> it's, so it's a uh, lack of personal awareness, a little bit, mm. isn't it? And what I'll say is, like, leading up to this point, it was sort of in and out of the conversation, but he was also at the same time while we're drinking, eating dinner, having conversation, playing a computer game on his iPad. <laughs> oh, I can't stand it. I, I cannot right? stand it. I can't stand it. Honestly, that's my biggest bugbear in the whole world. And, I mean, did you call him up on that? Uh, we did, and, and, he, and then he proceeded to sort of say, yeah, I mean, there's a 30-year-old man who still regularly borrows money from his father because he can't make his salary last, and just <laughs> all of these things. And I'm like, younger than you, I'd moved to Australia already. At your age, I was running a, a team of 20-odd people. And I'm like, you're 30 years old, and you're still playing your iPad at dinner. I'm just very hard to relate. <laughs> yeah, he'll look at you and go, yeah, but you're a boomer granddad, and you got all your wealth from property. <laughs> I wish. From property. <laughs> um, uh, I wish. <laughs> yeah, I, I was over in Bali not too far from the Philippines, and um, um, I was playing a golf tournament with my three buddies I went to university with, so all the same age. And we went down to the local cafe, and there were four uh, or six Australian kids there, all mm. around about 19 to 22. They They had the benefit of the beauty of youth. I mean, they were just naturally fit, tanned, mm-hmm. and they were all sat around the table and they were all six of them on some sort of Snapchatty, Instagrammy thing. And they didn't say a word to each other. And um, I, ha- I have a rule. I will bring a little bag with me to any pub or dinner and I will invite everyone just to put their mobile phone into that and we'll Mm. put it under the table. I mean, this is glorious for any thieves that are around that want to track where I'm going (laughs) on a Friday night. But um, and you sort of, I know, it it, it sounds super silliest, but it's so easy um, for, I think, the younger generation and and the older generation, my parents as well, to arrive at the pub, phone straight out, check in on Facebook, let everyone know what you're doing. And it's like, well, I haven't seen you in about three weeks. Can you put that away? And we can have actually have a decent conversation. And with my parents, I think um, that generation, it's, a, it's also new to them that it brings a comfort blanket. And with the younger generation than us, it's what they've always known, but I blame the parents because the parents have taken them to the pub when they were 10 years old. And instead of trying to have a conversation with them, they've had an easy life and put an iPad in front of them. So now mm. they get to, well, this guy's 27, did you say, though? Yeah, that's a little bit old well, for that. I think he was closer to 30. Yeah. It, may even, it may even have been 30. But it's interesting you bring yeah. that up. But like, I, I've got a friend who runs a couple of hostels in, in Australia. And this, and this was like mm. five years ago, he's saying this. But uh, I don't know if you ever went uh, backpacking, Tom, but like, one of those. It's one of those. I, I went backpacking in Australia, uh, albeit go. twenty-two years ago. So yeah, yeah, so it's wild for me as well. But <laughs> you know, the whole part, the benefit of that is one, you get to see all these amazing places. But two, is the people you meet along the way, right? So you check into the mm. hostel, you go into mm. that communal area, and you get to know people. Yeah. Whereas these days in the hostels, you know, they're full, 
but everybody nobody's talking to each other they're all talking to their yeah. friends or their online friends so you sort of it feels like they're missing such a large piece of the uh, yeah emotional development and benefits of traveling like that by just talking to people you know yeah, already, yeah. Instead of the people around one of, you. one of one of the memories i have with of traveling um is the fact that i felt so distant so far away i mean obviously not just geographically australia and the uk but um because i wasn't carrying around a mobile phone that was connected to the internet and facebook wasn't a thing and instagram wasn't mm. a thing and we we back in 2001 we kept in touch via email but even then i remember i had to go to an internet cafe to access the email to send to people so mm. when you when when i would check into these hostels you're absolutely right your only real option is to walk up to people and say hello or or yeah. sit down and read a book but there's no browsing on the internet and everything like that and it's an uncomfortable thing to do because it takes a little bit of confidence and i can definitely see that if it was me doing it now I'd walk in and because I'd feel a little bit uncomfortable, I'd maybe sit down and get my phone out and start scrolling on it. And that means that you're not making that effort. I'll tell you. No, but, I've got but, a, but, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, getting out of your comfort zone is so important in life. And whether that yeah. is traveling, work, sporting yeah. events, betting, all of those things. Um, a, a very good friend of mine who, who gave, I don't know where he got this words of wisdom because he wasn't his normal uh, repartee, but he said to me when I was like 19, he's like, to be successful in life, never be 100% comfortable. Always have a little bit of you that's yeah, still pushing yeah. you on, challenging you. So aim for 80 to 90% comfort. You're succeeding. Keep that little bit, that little thorn somewhere that keeps pushing you forward. Yeah, that's very good advice. Because um, uh, if you're always making yourself comfortable, then you're never probably actually um, driving to explore new yeah, stop, experiences and ideas. That's the thing. You stop challenging yourself, you stop moving. So, you know, eventually... And, you and, you, and then you become Gary body. from Accounts, you know, Grey Gary from Accounts. <laughs> Indeed. Everybody knows Grey Gary. <laughs> A quick gambling story before we start. I recognise we're 17 minutes in and I've just said the words before we start, but we're still <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is part of the podcast. Um, when I was travelling in... Um, in Australia, I have a gambling uh, success story, a negative EV gambling success story. I was in Adelaide um, and I was at Mulga's hostel and Mulga was a terrible human being. He really was. He was awful. He was a, he was a drunken, overweight, balding, mid-50s Australian man who was very angry at life and seemed to despise his customer base. He didn't like backpackers, but he owned Mulga's mm. backpacking hostel. He had a girlfriend who was maybe 21 and she was from, I'm going to say Vietnam. It could have been any of the countries around that area of Southeast Asia. And he was abusive towards her. We saw him be verbally abusive to her. We have no doubt he was probably physically abusive towards her mm -hmm. as well. And um, we was, I was very much stuck in a rut because I had no money in the bank and I was working picking grapes at, um, at one of the red wine fields, which is horrendous slave labor and, and i just about earned enough to pay my rent and my travel to the job um and that was it so I, I couldn't i was stuck in a cycle i couldn't get out i wanted to get north to alice springs and um i was working with these danish guys and we were telling this vietnamese girl we're gonna break you out of here one day we just need to come up with a plan so one day I come back from the fruit picking, it's Friday night, you get your weekly wages and the guy, the Danish guy in front of me is being paid out. And um, the guy paying him his wages goes um, 100, 200, 210, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. 
except he's given him eight $100 notes. He hasn't switched from the hundreds oh. to the tens. So he's given him like 800 instead of 200. And I'm getting paid the same amount. And I go up and he goes 100, 200, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. But he's given me 800. And I'm like, this is the opportunity. We needed about 1,500 to get out and get north to Alice Springs. Um, the 260 I was earning every week was just paying for my rent and my travel. So I was mm. never getting to 1,500. I was stuck. So I was halfway there. So before he could notice, we bolted out of the door and we went down to the local casino and we all just put all of our wages for that week on red to see if we could double it up and red came in and then we uh went on the beers for the rest of the day which is not something we'd done when we were there and we got back quite late and we woke up the vietnamese girl and we were like um tonight is the night and um we packed up all of our stuff jumped over the fence at the back jumped into the front seat of the danish guy's car i think one of the danish guys wasn't drinking he hadn't been drinking all night and then we just drove north like that. And then everything got better when we got to Alice Springs. Um, and I could still be stuck at Mulga's hostel today if that red hadn't come in. But it was, you know, minus uh, minus one and a half percent EV, that bet. That's it was brilliant. just one of those that needed to come in. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's been a long time since anyone said it got better once we got to Alice Springs. But that's a whole <laughs> political conversation we won't get into right now. <laughs> that, that's how bad Mulga's hostel was. So, um <laughs> John, you run Predictology. Um, can you give me a little bit of your background and how Predictology came about? Yeah, sure. Um, actually, yeah, so being with that, so I think I got sort of, so I'm not one, I don't know what your background is, Tom, when you originally came into betting, but I'm not someone that grew up with, you know, uh, a bookmaker, a bookmaker uncle, or my dad was always into the races. Betting just wasn't a thing in our household. Maybe did the pools occasionally. Um, and it's only when I got into my early 20s and sort of fell into digital marketing. Um, it was one of the first search agencies in the UK. It was, you know, it was a lot of numbers, a lot of spreadsheets, all stuff that I, I, I enjoyed and found fascinating. And it was around about exactly the same time that I discovered a website called Adrian Massey. I don't know if you remember that one. I don't, but I heard you and Pete talk very favorably about <laughs> it on the SBC podcast. Yeah, I mean, it was just a wonderful site, very you know, basic, very early 2000s type of website. But what did it, it do? Just, it just had wealth, you know, re lines and lines of, of horse racing data. So you could mm -hmm. go in there and just put some filters on and you spit out this long list of results and you could easily copy paste that into Excel and start sort of trying to see if you could develop a profitable system or a profitable strategy. Was um, it like an early time form, just like a lot of data on all the different attributes in horse racing? Yeah, probably that, or uh, I think the closest thing to it now is probably horse race base. If you've seen that okay. one, but uh, I wonder, I wonder how he, I wonder how he collect. I've always wondered how you collect that, especially as a small band, because it's probably an incredible amount of data collection, and the only thing that could be done with automation and scraping, I would imagine. Yeah, I think it must have been something like that. I mean, it wasn't as in-depth as you would get now, like with, with speed mm. times and ratings and things like that. But it had all like, you know, the weights and the tracks and the going. and the, But the key thing, I think, was that it had odds. So you could, you know, start looking up. If only a 10-runner handicap and it's priced between this and this. Very, you know, generic systems that probably work for a short while, then don't, you know, the edge goes away and things like that. But it was, mm. for me at that time, it was nothing, I'd never seen anything like it. And I love playing with the numbers. and you know, had some success out of it. 
but over the years, you know, my, my, my career was going well, but on the side, you know, where my real passion was, 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 was football and, and trying to make that work. And what was your career? Uh, I was working in digital marketing, so search engine marketing. Okay. Um, but this is way back when Google was first becoming a, a thing in that regard. Um, yeah. So I worked for one of the first digital agencies uh, for, I think, four years. Sold in I know that a few of the digital marketers cleaned up in the in the early years of Google, like the bell curve of wealth distribution. The guys right at the top made a hell of a lot of money, way more than you could make now in 2023. Would you have sat up at the top end there? Uh, the, certainly the companies are, I mean, it's a startup and the company itself sold for oh, 70 million. To, oh, well, that sounds pretty decent to me. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, taking a diversion in the story, but yeah, so that, at that point I sort of had the, um, the foresight that, that, yeah, it was great working in a company like that. It was very small. It grew very fast because I was one of the first through the doors, you know, you, you get that experience and exposed to things. And those responsibilities you wouldn't get walking into a you know 100 200 person company right so you you kind of sink or swim as you're going along um and when the company sold i sort of had the foresight to know that you know the upper management the, the people i've been learning from and uh, aspiring to be would probably be taking their much larger checks that, that they banked than the one i did and moving on to pastors new so i decided to be out the, out the door before they were out the door um and the more traditional path was to go down to London, and then perhaps after a few years, you go to US or Australia. But I decided just to cut out the middleman and went straight to Sydney in 2007, which was probably mm. one of the best things I did because you know you're walking into a market that's two or three years sort of junior to where it's established in the UK. So you're sort of walking in and being a bit of an expert in the market because people are sort of looking to your experience. And I happened to join a great company. There was sort of four or five of us. We were sort of fourth or fifth largest customer for Google, but within sort of two, three years, I'm running that team with Google's largest partner. The team's grown to 30, 40 people. And we just rode this, you know, amazing period in the early two, uh, early North, what do you call it? Naughties? Early 2010s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, Naughties, yeah. Yeah. And it was just a wonderful experience, wonderful people. You were really at the cutting edge of things, really challenging things and really sort of following that whole digital market. And, uh, you know, it really sort of taught me a lot that I've sort of taken into other things as well. But, now I heard um I heard you say a lot of your gambling skills were honed on the fact that you're pretty nifty around Excel and spreadsheets. Was um was your work at the digital marketing um area something that you were just constantly figuring out how VLOOKUPs work and things like that, or uh, did you just happen to know Excel anyway? No, it was definitely yeah, it was definitely the former. I was learning skills in in the digital space that I was going, all right, you know, learn those formulas, learn to do those things in Excel and then sort of yeah. transitioning that into, into the hobby side of things, which it, which it was at that time. Um, I, I had the um, sort of same progression there, whereas I, I worked in um, um engineering consultancy. Um, and whilst we could use other bits of software, everyone at the time could use Excel. I, I, I don't know if it's a, a more of a dying uh, skill set these days. I would absolutely promise you I am not going into the arena of gambling and advantage play if I don't know how to use Excel. If the, without Excel, without the ability to quickly arrange data, mm. then the gambling edges don't appear for me. And um, I know um, people today ask some rudimentary beginner questions about how do you do various things on Excel. Honestly, I think one of the things anybody could do 
to sort of um, kickstart their own analytics is go and learn. If you don't know how to use it, go and learn. The best way that you had to learn and I had to learn was that we needed it for our jobs over a few years. So you kind of have to learn then. Mm. But if you don't need it for your job, go and take a course. It's, it, I think yeah. it's I think it's paramount and I think you can't do it without it because you do need the ability in gambling to be able to interrogate and juggle data around quickly and efficiently. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's, you can do, there's some great courses online and it really don't, don't cost that much, but it's just one of those life skills. If you have it, you'll always find mm-hmm. uses for it. And, you know, even, even with everything that predictology can do, I still do my record keeping for my trades and my betting in Excel and, sometimes mm. export some of the data we have from from the site because just some just certain ways you want to look at the data it's so much easier in that excel format than it is necessarily on a on a website or a, a database screen so mm. you know having that ability to be able to manipulate that data quickly and easily is um is really important yeah for sure for sure so um how did you progress from your the digital marketing in sydney to predictology then yeah so around about um well, I mean, probably went live 2014, but it was probably mm-hmm. it's one of those projects. I don't know if this was similar for 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 your project, but in hindsight, I wish I developed it a lot quicker. But it was sort of the time I was sort of doing it, uh, hiring a developer, sort of single developer to build sort of what I wanted, but still having a quite a successful career. And when he'd be like, "Oh, you know, this is going to take a bit longer than I thought," you sort of go, "Oh, okay," and then you just forget about it for a week or two, and then you come back to it, sort of instead of how I work now, which is very much full time on it. But the genesis really though was because I was doing so much in Excel and because I wanted to replicate how the the, the data that was available in horse racing, that sort of was where the genesis came because you have a lot of what I would call statistical websites for, for, for football, you know, the footy stats, the who scored, those types mm-hmm. of websites. Yeah. And they're great for giving you stats, but I don't know. I've always been of the view that, if uh, an if an insight does not have an action next to it, it's kind of worthless. So what was missing was being able to look at that stat and go, if I can add the the the, the pricing to that as well, then yeah. I'm starting to come up with an actionable insight. And then we've now we're talking. Now we have something we can test and learn. Yeah, they- and actually build something from. This is the thing that Twitter tipsters are very guilty of, that um, they'll say, well, um, I've got the bet of the day tonight. Um, uh, it is over 9.5 corners in the Manchester United match. And you look at it and go, okay, but mm-hmm. do you? what At what odds? And what odds are... Where where do I start? What price can I get? And there's the, the, it's the price sensitivity is the second part of the game. You can interrogate and think, well, it's, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter that it's more than 50% likely that you think something's going to happen. That's completely irrelevant unless you've got a price that you can take that is associated with that probability. Exactly. I mean, if I just use a digital marketing example, like, you know, we have a meeting with a client and we say, look, we spent $10,000 this month. We've got you know, 20,000 clicks and we've made you 15,000 in sales. Great. Yeah. But why? And what's next? And yeah. what can we learn and, from and, that data? And, 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 and is that good or bad? Exactly, because they're right? just numbers without any yeah. benchmarking. Yeah. Exactly. So, and it, and it just really wasn't anything that was pulling all that together in the football space. So, initially, Predictology was 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 purely a historical database. You know, we at the time, I think we I built up a database of about two hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand matches. We had about a hundred different variables. You know, half time scores, full time scores, uh, etc. 
and we were able to pull in um, odds for all of those markets. You know, having first off gold markets, second half gold markets, half time, full time, Asian handicaps, etc. Mm-hmm. So you could go in pulling those odds in because that's not that's a really complicated thing to do to pull in odds in real time, like because you know even three hour old odds are probably useless. Yeah. Um, and also you want more than one bookmaker that it, it's such a complicated thing to do. It's the step of the process that many, including me would fail at except for kind of in an amateurish way until I went and sought real kind of it specialist help for it. How did you solve that problem? Uh, threw money at the problem. No. <laughs> through, say um, yeah. Oh, you threw money said, at it. <laughs> yeah, money that's, money. that's exactly what I did as well today. <laughs> but yeah, um, like I, I think but, uh, in those those beginning days, I was just there, like literally just going copy paste with my mouse, like over and over again for months and months and months. And um, yeah, um, I, it it showed the proof of concept worked, but it wasn't a long term solution. Totally. Yeah. I mean, for for in those early days, I think. I mean, this website, you couldn't do what I did back then. And, and, I, and I suspect, I, mean, I don't know whether I should be, I don't know, it's fine. Uh, basically, so I, I think someone might have worked for one of the major bookmakers and they were selling basically a database um, at a very right, okay. reasonable okay. price yeah. going back a period of mm-hmm. time. So I bought that and that's where I did a lot of my internal Excel work. Then I found a, mm-hmm. uh, an XML API feed provider, um, which again, mm-hmm. I don't think is still in existence, but they they could provide five years worth of historical odds and then the live odds going forwards. And we've just improved yeah. the partnerships as we go forward. Like you can go to someone like, um, that, that's so TX valuable, odds. right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they charge a fortune. Buy, TX odds. But they charge an absolute fortune. I think it was something like when I spoke to them last 50 P or it might even been a pound or two pound per game for the historical data. Now, if you want, yeah, like we've got sixty-eight leagues and fifteen seasons. You know, you do the math yeah. too far. Like, let's get it's getting pretty heavy before we've even talked about the live stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so, there's, nine, there's ninety-six games in the English league per day, mm-hmm. and there's another. I'd say you you realistically might want to look at three hundred games on a Saturday, and then another three hundred yeah. during the week. So, what did you say the per game was? I think I, I think actually it was two pound a game. I mean, you're looking at twelve hundred a week you're in the region of five thousand pounds a month it's a lot of money yeah and that was just and if you wanted 15 years worth of that then again it goes up so i, I suspect uh, yeah, i was probably yeah. lucky in those early days you know we're, we're talking 10 years ago now that mm-hmm. uh people perhaps some people didn't know the value of what they had or some didn't really care they yeah. just wanted to sell as much as they could i so i sort of pieced it together from a number of places but sort of since 2016 17 we've been pulling in all our own data through various sources and, and you know, mm. cross-checking it and quality of it. But, you know, those early days, you, you, yeah. you just uh, get hold of what data you can and, and try and make some use of it and, and then improve the quality of it over time. Yeah, and bringing all of that data together, especially the odds, it has its own complexities as well. I mean, I don't know if anybody cares about the behind-the-scenes stuff that has to happen, but you'll have Manchester United over here, Man United over here, Manchester uttered over here and stuff like that. And then... Do you have to spend like forever sort of building a library of all the different spellings of all of these teams? You do. And then it gets even worse because Betfair are terrible because they will just change. Because mm. we, 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 we're fully integrated with BF Bot Manager. So 
a lot of the, our members have a lot of the options for for connecting on whatever they're building on our side or using on our side and creating strategies for it to be the bet placement to be, be done automatically. But um, Betfair will just change a team ID, not necessarily change the name, but a team ID, mm-hmm. and we're using we're using the IDs rather than the the, the team names. I won't tell anyone. Yeah. There's no list published anywhere. Yeah. So the only way to find it yeah. is when you look at your bot the next morning and go, oh, why didn't that game place a bet? And then you send it over to them yeah. and they go, oh, that's his why. And we've updated our record, yeah. but they can't do anything about it. We can't do anything about it. You can only spot it after the fact. And it's, it's incredibly frustrating. They, but... they did that yesterday for us in the um, golf. Um, they sent through Brian Easton, uh, who was 400 to 1 to win the golf. But then they changed his ID and his ID was changed to an existing ID. And all of a sudden we had... Um, um, we linked him up his place odds with a different player, and we had him at four hundred to one to win, and um, mm. three point five to come in the top five. Now, if that existed, it's the bet of the century because you're getting <laughs> you're getting three. I think either three thousand or thirty thousand EV on the place part there, but you weren't because um, it was just linked up wrong, and um, they can be a nightmare for things. But they'll also do things like in one market they'll call Stoke Stoke City, and in another market they'll call it Stoke. And I, I cannot mm. believe that Betfair don't have their own global list of definitions of teams and players and go, this is the primary name we're calling them. They don't have that. It seems like no. there's somebody literally typing them out week by week. Definitely. But I think, you know, when it comes to automation, it, like I'm a big advocate. I've probably been automating stuff in one way, shape or form for the last 10 years. But you have to accept that, if you want things 100%, you have to do it manually. If you're willing, nine, yeah. if you're okay, 99% yeah. or 98%, automation opens up so many doors. It's just as willing, yeah. you just have to be willing once in a while you're going to miss something, but that is just the cost of doing business. Yeah. Now, talking about doing it manually, I want to move into this now. You've got your databases. You've got, and so you're looking backwards at various trends. I heard you say on the SBC podcast something, an example being if how many times if Arsenal lose the previous match, do they win the next match? The bounce back ability and things like that. Um, yeah. Now, was that always your um, sort of structure of your edge? You're looking for historical trends and you're um, then trying to see from those historical trends if you can get the benchmarks and odds that you can beat now that you can get better than or were you moving into an area where you were trying to price stuff up yourself on current games coming up in the weekend yeah so it's 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 a sort of combination if i go back sort of five or six years ago i was probably a lot less sophisticated and it would be looking for you know looking at those historical trends running it through mm-hmm. uh, monte carlo or an archie score just to see how confident we can be these days, it's it's using an underlying model that's profitable, and that's, and that's just a starting point. So we we then are looking at our internal ratings, which look at I don't know hundreds, thousands of matches with similar uh, mm-hmm. profiles. That sort of creates a, a probability, which we can convert into odds. Then we're looking at pinnacle, and what are, you know with those the, the systems, the underlying is profitable, but the most optimal way is then using this the, the historical performance of those systems using the rating mm. is the price better than what we think it should be and only following those is where the the, the, the profits le- the leverage on those profits yeah. goes up significantly so if i can and i completely understand that you've got to of course withhold a certain amount of intellectual property because obviously you don't want anyone to clone what you're doing and we have the 
definitely have the same issue at, mm-hmm. uh, over at Bookie Bashing. But if I can ask you, and I'll give you an example of um, my strategy, um, a, a sort of brief or rough outline of how your underlying profitable model works. And I'm just going to throw out ours very quickly just to see how we can two completely different strategies can sort of both lead to an end, this, a similar end goal. So with ours, mm-hmm. we um, break everything down into XG, which I know from listening to you previously is a stat that you're not particularly that interested in. From our perspective, it's the number one stat because it's the base from which we start to price almost everything up for both players and for teams. From an XG from each team, we can then use our binomial probability distributions to estimate the what is the chances this team's going to score zero one two three four five six all the way up to 20 we know the probability of each team scoring zero goals to 20 goals so we can price up the correct score market and out of the correct score market we can get everything we can get the match odds we can get both teams to win and both uh, uh, team to win and both teams to score asian handicaps uh, and it's just a summation of the different score lines up to 2020, which should be good enough unless you're looking at women's international football. Perhaps there's a couple of games where 2020 is is, is still statistically relevant. But um, everything's based on that, even our player XG, because we know the team XG, um, the player XG is a function of that. Like we got 10 outfield players on the pitch. Who's going to score what p- percentage of goals based on the fact that Man City are getting two goals in the game. Is Haaland getting 30% of them? Is he getting 40% of them? Based on that, what's the probability of getting any time goal scorer, first goal scorer, two plus, three plus? That's the underlying model that we use. Um, for your underlying profitable model, what strategy did you go for? Yeah, I think I think um, we're sort of, I think when we first spoke, we're sort of coming at the, the same objective, but from different sides. So I think we're, we're mm-hmm. using a lot more historical odds uh, as our starting point and then looking at sort right. of trends within that. So what we're looking, what I'm ideally looking for is trying to sort of get to zero in a first instance. So, you know, we've got, we've got a number, we can, we've got literally hundreds of different filters which we can apply to any model to look at, you know, certain teams that perform, you know, what's their average points per game? Are they, how often do they go over or under 2.5 over whatever set period you want to put it, any number of things we can mm-hmm. do. But what you're looking for really then is sort of over a five to 10 year period, would that be profitable at an average price in the market? Because we, we we show odds as sort of like the best odds, the average mm-hmm. odds of just taking our bookmakers and averaging it out. So if you can get, I always think if you can get to somewhere that has the foundations of a profitable model, obviously we don't, mm-hmm. we don't know that that's going to continue into the future. Edges get changed or uh, you know, forms have yeah. changed, but, we get, a, we get an extra ten minutes of injury time, which you know has an effect on on the number of expected goals we have in a match. Things yeah. like that. Well, that's an interesting point. I want to come back to that one too in a second. But okay. so what? what yes, yeah, so what I'm effectively doing there is 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 getting that baseline, and then we're trying to see is right. Okay, what are the markers that we can find within there that were the the profitable markers within there versus the ones that we're losing. And so I always think it's much easier to go from zero to a positive return than it is to try and turn a negative return into a positive return, if you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. what we're looking in there, so then we start looking at the ratings, then we start looking at uh, the pricing, coming, uh, and then we look at, so what's the average performance within this data set? So if there's been 2,000 matches and we know 50% of the time, so if we're getting an average, if we can only, if we focus on the ones that are 2.1 and higher within that, 
what kind of impact does that have? And just started start playing mm. with different levers and then sort of, we still use a lot of pinnacle odds because, it's, you know, for obvious reasons, but with them being so sharp. So if we're, if we're able to use our models and still find a price that's beating pinnacle and can reasonably get on, that's where we're sort of trying mm. to find an edge for, for what we do. That makes do you sense. use, um, do you use a lot of statistical analysis in that, in that like P values or R squared fit values where, um, you almost need a statistical confidence looking at the data, um, um, and sometimes you you know you might be able to find some sort of trend, but the statistical confidence isn't enough. It doesn't reach a threshold where it's relevant enough for you. Correct. Yeah. So, but like something within the system builder, sort of if a if a user is is using that, they there's an option where they can look at more extended analysis. So built we'll built within that, it's sort of got a five star rating, but it's using exactly those RT scores, p values. Uh, number of mm-hmm. bets within that data sample to give you a sort of a, a semi-confidence filter, but that yeah, same thing yeah. is also happening automatically on our back end mm. through our full database where the ratings are coming from as well. So it's it's using have both you, sides. Have you ever done an analysis of um, return on um, investment or performance get on the low confidence analyses against your high confidence analyses, or is that not something you've looked at? Uh, I haven't. I think it's something I'd like to explore, but it's not something I yeah. looked at at this stage. Yeah. Strangely, we did an analysis over that. So we have the same thing. We have, we have, um, although from ours, because we're not trending, it's more the confidence in the data source because mm. um, um, a highly liquid Betfair market would be an example of a very, um, um, of, of, of the highest confidence that we could have um, on a data source. And then if we are um, building something up from a probability distribution on very minimal data ourselves, and it, um, then it would be a low confidence um um data source and yet somehow some of our lower confidence data source analyses are outperforming the higher confidence ones i often think it's because maybe these are markets that are a little bit less liquid and therefore they provide a little bit more opportunity for swinging prices you can get a little bit of higher ev on things like that now a question i definitely want to ask you um which i've been thinking for the last five minutes as you've been talking about this is how does it work? Let's say I'm looking at who are Man City playing Liverpool, I think, on the weekend, right? They are. So, yeah. So I'm looking at Man City over the last um, 2,000 matches, and that might take me all the way back to 2013. When Manchester City played Newcastle United in 2013, is that game in any way relevant to what happens with Manchester City against Liverpool on Sunday? I think that's a great question, and I would say very little in on on an individual basis um where it like okay there's a couple of things that i i, I generally sort of say with say with members so firstly like it's it, i think it's fine to look at a model over a five ten year period to see like is it something if it's consistent and it's working if you're seeing big swings from one year to the next and that's probably not something that's going to be viable but if you were looking at how liverpool man city gone on in 2013 I don't think that has any real impact on today. But if you're looking at the profile of that game in terms of uh, strengths of teams, how they were rated, what their ELO scores were at that time, what their average points are at this point, what their average goal scored, average goals conceded, and look at hundreds of other games of similar stature, then that data can feed into a bigger data set and have value. But will it help you pick the winner on this weekend? Not on a game-by-game not on a, on a game basis, no. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, I, w- I would imagine that it's it's the sort of thing where the further you go back, the less relevant it becomes. But there's still some relevancy, and so there's maybe perhaps a a weighting that can be applied over time. You know, you go once we're back in 1966, it's zero, and if it's last weekend, it's at its maximum. But um, uh, yeah, look, I think there's, there's yeah, and I agree. Like I think judging on on a head to head. 10-year record, no relevance. But at the same time, football doesn't change significantly. What I mean by that, the average for a goal in the first half, pretty much in any league across the globe, is around about, what, 1.1516? Yeah. And the second half is about 1.5, 1.55. That very rarely... You get outliers in French League 2 who are down in the note points, and then you get another outlier in the Dutch um, Erster mm. division, which, you know, up at 1.7. But generally, you know, and there's not massive swings in the Premier League, La Liga, MLS, yeah. things like that. So, yeah, so so, that, so football itself doesn't change too much. So you're looking at the, the characteristics outside of that. And I think that's where those 10-year trends or databases with 10, 15 years' worth of matches in, on a big data perspective, that helps a lot. Does it help you on an individual game basis? Not so much. It depends what your objective is for, for, for using that data. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I've, gotcha. sorry, I, I, I've, I've just remembered you said it. So I'm interested in what your views are in, in this uh, new season of 10 minutes of injury time. What are you seeing from that? Yeah. Well, uh, we had to look, make sure there were no fundamental effects that it was going to have on our models. And through luck... Um, uh, um, in the um, way that we've structured things, our input, our our primary input is looking at the over 2.5 goals mar- in the markets, various different market sources. And from that, we can build a match XG. So because we're looking at the markets, we're not doing what you're doing. We're not doing the historical trending. We're asking the markets for this information. The markets are doing it for us. Um, um, so... Uh, it what not by design but by luck the all the donkey work of the effects of injury time um um yeah fed fed into our models anyway all of the um player xgs all of the match xgs um the i don't have enough data yet to show if they're significantly higher this season to last season but one thing that did absolutely trip us up was lockdown and the effect that mm. that had on match xg and corners and cards and that was because the markets had got it wrong and we were using the markets who had got it wrong if you bet unders on goals corners and cards when we came out of lockdown well we were still in lockdown but they started the football um games without any crowd atmosphere Mm. something about there being no crowds in the match saw five six seven eight year lows for the amount of action on the pitch there were fewer there were fewer corners, there were fewer goals, and there were a lot fewer cards. Mm. And um, a lot of the your odds, the request the bets, the paddy powers, um, these sort of um, intra-game parlays, if you were American, where you're looking at goals and corners and cards, they're all looking at overs. They're all looking at action. People love, they're all based on things to happen. And they all lost. Um, Mm. And our model that was set up around the time to look at these worked right up until the time that we went into lockdown. And then when we came out of lockdown, we applied the same models and they went on the most horrendous losing period. And as a result, Bucky Bashing lost a 
significant amount of its membership base. And it's somewhere where we dropped the ball because we used the incorrect assumption that the markets were going to be right because they were applying the same XG, X cards, X corners in these empty stadiums as before. So um, that was a learning lesson for us because we were like, you can't just trust that the markets have got it right. In fact, unders players, and I do know some um, pretty sharp people got in touch with me with some betting advice. And they were like, as we, as these games were being played in empty stadiums, they were like, you've got to be, you've got to get your syndicates out there and you've just got to bet the unders everywhere, unders in everything everywhere. Mm. And I did it. And I made a small amount of money, but it was one of those things where somebody handed me the golden key. They gave me the information and the, the prices were out there. And if I could turn back time, I would I would have be doing nothing but mm. sending teams up and down the country into William Hills onto their SSBTs and just betting under everything. But yeah. um, drop the ball on that one. So. It was an interesting period, wasn't it? And, and I think for a short while as well, away teams were, were overperforming as well alongside those markets. It was a... Quite an, there was something about Bundesliga, I think. Mm, Someone yes, gave me indeed. an example of the yeah. way teams in Bundesliga where the home away uh, um, benefits that you get had been completely wiped out. I, I remember looking at it, but I also think I remember coming to the conclusion that the sample size was insignificant because it was like... It was like 80 games or something like that. Mm. I can't remember. But yeah, um, yeah, I can definitely see how the fact that if you're playing at home in front of your own crowd and they're all cheering you on, it makes a difference. And those kind of things that should have been obvious with hindsight, a little bit like how, you know, betting on the Australian PGA this weekend, perhaps we could have loaded up on all the Australian players. And then you have a look at round one and it's all the Australian players at the top. And it's so obvious after the event, mm. but you just didn't think about it before. Yeah, so, totally. Well, but I guess like the... The other point I would make in terms of this extra injury time, and, it, and it's it's following a similar trend to the World Cup, where I don't know if you recall, sort of during the, the group stages, there was sort of a, I think if I remember right, there was a lot more goals initially in the first two or three rounds, but as the tournament progressed, that sort of it still ended up coming back down to 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 the average or to the mean. Um, like I just I had a quick look at before I came on on the chat with you, like in the Premier League at the moment, goals in the last ten minutes of a game are at twenty one percent. Whereas last now, when is the was... when is the last ten minutes of the game? Is that eighty minutes to the end to full time? Yeah, so or is it... that literally like full time minus ten minutes? I believe it's eighty one to ninety plus. Yeah, I believe that's what I'm looking. So now, at. so now that period of time is like twenty minutes now. Yeah, yeah. whereas before yeah. it would have been twenty fourteen or something. Indeed, yeah. but what I, what I what I predict here, and I think we'll see it by the end of the season, <clears> is that that will return to more the long term mean of around about. 17 to 18 percent like last year was right, below yeah. the 15 percent but two years back 18 percent was 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 mm. uh the norm so 18 to 21 is not a huge gap considering how much injury time we're, we're getting and i think teams just adapt and, and get used to this time and it sort of just uh it will still even itself out in, in that that period i don't think it's sort of like go rushing in and thinking you know goals mm. below the, the teams are pretty good at adapting to those sort of things over time. We're probably at the peak now, and I think we'll start to see less injury time goals, or not less necessarily, but more to the mean of where it should be. Now, this pertains, of course, to two different edges that are um, applicable, uh, pre-match, pre-kickoff edges and in-play edges. Mm. Now, um, at Bookie Bashing, we just do pre-match. There's a reason for that, and that is that we don't, 
we don't believe at the moment of time we can get an odds feed that is um, fast enough to be appropriate or applicable for any in-play edges. And without the odds, it's very, very, um, as we've discussed before, you've just got data, but you're not benchmarking against it. anything. For me, personally, I've always found in-play edges um, to be more profitable, to be more swingy. Um, and I, you know, I may be looking at, the exchange solely and I'm trying to draft up my own expectation of what's going to happen in the game from now on pricing something up myself and then identifying can I beat the market by 10-20% and if I can there's always that question why can I beat the market by 10-20% is it because I'm right or is it because I'm very wrong which is an important question always to ask yourself if you do find a value bet um, mm. so because at Bookie Bashing we're just looking at pre-match um, the, the sort of changes that happen at the end of the um, with injury time and everything that don't have that much effect for us. Um, but I believe you you have moved slightly away from pre-match edges into looking at in-play edges. Is there any reason for that? Uh, yeah, um, I would say more than slightly. It's probably half-half now. Um, for me, it, uh, it, there's, there's, two, there's two aspects of, of it. I think... Um, for me, I think you, you can you can get greater uh, returns and leverage the returns much easier in in, in play. Um, one as one way I'll be looking at that is probably doing the same analysis that you're doing and what we've talked about previously. And like, does this game, particularly in the gold markets, does this game pre- present value pre-match? And then really, what mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm looking at is like, okay, can that game get to halftime and we're not seeing any goals? And then I'll sort of I still believe in if you, if you recall, so I'm sort of talking about a model that I already think will be profitable. So I'm already reasonably confident this goal should this game should have say three goals. The price was better than I thought it should be pre kickoff. We have we've got to the halfway point. The price is now much much lower, or the risk is much lower. And then I'll sort of be going into sort of target those elements. Um, the other thing I like to target is very much the last 15, uh, 10, 15 minutes of the mm. game because. It is the, the it is the um, highest percentage window for goals to be scored, um, mm-hmm. and in particular, I like to focus on games where there's only one goal difference in it. Um, so, sort of, then you're looking to sort of target one or two goals in in, in those sort of last 10, 10 minutes, and you can get very very low odds. You know, you could be going in at you know laying under sort of one hundred eight, one hundred nine, one hundred seven. Um, so, I don't need to be right very often. Um, yeah. For I much prefer laying at 108 than at 10 and a half, that's for sure. But exactly. to get to get to um, the last 10, 15 minutes of the game, we um, you start off, as you say, with a um, there should be three goals in this game, and then we've got decay over the game, um, the decay of XG. But matches will decay XG at different rates based on um the caginess essentially you know th- there are certainly games out there where you're looking at it and go these teams are happy with the draw uh yeah. or they are or this team's one go- goal up and they park the bus and it's going to be pretty much impossible for the other team to uh, get their equalizer and so the pre-match assumptions are almost completely out the window there and you almost need to use a different decay rate on the expectation of what's going to happen towards the end of the match than you did to have to do pre-match and that's a the kind of thing that i feel like if i'm watching the match with my own eyes i can make my own assessment of this but i have no idea how you would 
automate that on a grand scale. Um, do you just look at individual matches when you're doing this, or have you found a way to do it um, at scale? Well, I won't. I, I won't um, give away specifically what I'm what I'm doing, but mm-hmm. uh, what I will say is there are a couple of statistics that are pretty common, widely available statistics that you can look at on a game-by-game basis. And I use those mm-hmm. as a shortlist point. Now, what I'll then do, then I'm looking at price. So like, if, if I'm not interested in those games which look like it's end-to-end or the favorites really strongly looking to add their second goal because I, I have a minimum price that I want. So if it hits this price before 81 minutes, that triggers for me to get in because I've already it's already ticked everything mm-hmm. else for me. But if that price is higher than I think it should be, then at that point, I won't go near it. So it's quite hard to explain. Maybe some of it's intuitive. I'm not sure. From, from watching, is um, shots on and off these, target but... one of the one of the main attributes you would have, be having a look at there? It's that certainly is relevant. Um, so that what I'm referring to in terms of my initial shortlist is something that is a something you can check pre-match. So it's it's looking at certain trends that certain teams have and where their goal distributions are. Shall we say? Um, that's not a hard and fast rule you can follow, but it certainly whittles out. It certainly gives you a much more manageable shortlist as a starting point and then doing some other analysis uh, on top of that. But sort of looking where at least one team, how they distribute some of their goals um, and, and things like that. And then you're looking for those games where it's what's close together. I particularly like... So, you, also... so you're identifying teams that have perhaps an unusual pattern of scoring late in games or not scoring late in games either one but they're they're, they're deviating from the average would that be fair? yeah yeah it, it, it's 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 that's a simplistic way of summing up but it is it is one of the things i look at um but it, it does have some relevance uh for sure um you know a team like <laughs> a team like Rex, Rexham would be a prime example this year who can go two nil up and lose three two and go three nil down and win four three but then probably not yeah. the best one to actually go after because of the Odds and, and it's quite widely known, but I like to apply that sort of logic. In the, the yeah, they're an enigma. The, the 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 Hollywood effect on Wrexham means that it's way more people are betting on them, and so they've got way more effect on the market than anybody else in their league. So it's, um, yeah. they're an unusual game, but it's the it's the Fallon Sherrick effect as well. I mean, when Fallon Sherrick's playing any uh, male data, the bookmakers will find that they're taking all the money for Fallon Sherrick uh, for two reasons. One, she'll usually be an outsider, so you've got the fave long shot bias, and two, everyone wants to see the girl beat the boys, and therefore. Uh, it's uh, when you look at any mm, darts match with Fallon Sherrick, you've got to think that this these prices are biased to the maximum. I think Wrexham have the same thing. Um, couple in with that with what you just said that they have an unusual goal distribution in the game. It's an enigma both for for market makers and for punters as well. Yeah, and, and look, I, I like to look outside of some of the major leagues as well. So, like where I have a lot of my success, um, you know, I'm looking at. Brazil, Argentina, MLS, Japan, Korea, some of the Scandinavian leagues, um, which are traditionally more low scoring, because what you find in those, in, you find it's it's a little bit easier finding an edge in those in those types of games, because certainly something like Brazil and Argentina, almost every game is priced like it's going to be unders, but if you, yeah. if you scratch a little bit below the surface, it's a lot easier to exploit because the markets will just. I find a lot of it that the if it's just a standard game, a lot of what the pre-match pricing will do will follow very 
similar arc in terms of the price decay. Decay. Um, it's only when you suddenly see like it's a nil-nil with ten shots on targets for both teams that it'll start to sort of really skew. But you just you just yeah. ignore those games. And but if you've done your prof- profiling right beforehand, then what I like to what I like to see is sort of in the from the sixty to the eighty minute. Is there is there a general intensity increase? Shots on target are great to see, but are there yeah. more attacks? Where's the possession movements happening in that point? So is there is there something happening um, with with also those, the, those leagues are um, those leagues are less efficient, right? So Man City versus Liverpool, ninety five thousand pounds traded at Betfair, uh, and it's mm. Thursday lunchtime, so forty eight hours before the match. Um, Brazil, Syria are tonight four to late versus Bot- uh, Botafogo, 34,000. That's half the amount traded, but it, the game's in a few hours' time. Yes. So it's significantly less. And then Orlando versus Colombo versus MLS, 705 pounds mm. traded. So what you find in your leagues as well is that there's less liquidity. And because there's less liquidity, there's less efficiency. And then, therefore, you would hope that you're bringing something to the table that other people haven't because exactly. um, you, you don't have to be the sharpest person in the world. You just have to be the sharpest person at the table that you're sat at in a game of poker. You know? Totally. And, 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 um, it's, it's, and it's the same it's, with betting opportunities. It is. And it's just learning a little bit about the leagues and the teams as well. Like MLS, for mm. example, is, a, is, a, is a, a league that's strong for forward players, but quite weak for defensive players. So let's say like it's championship forwards and league one defenders. So the, the, you'll see a yeah, lot of yeah. one team goes up 2-0 and then it's 2-2 at full time. A league like um, Japan and Korea can look on the stats terrible, but then so, but it will come to life with a goal. And this is going to lead on to my wider point that sort of people get, a, it, it, where I get a lot of my returns, like I'm, I'm covering one more goal just because that will sort of get me scratched or a little bit of profit because I think it's value. But what you're looking for is whether those goals that change games, you know, when it's, oh, one goal's gone in and suddenly you've got three or four. So I'm spreading myself across. I've got no qualms with sort of a game's nil-nil at 60 minutes and I'm going to target four goals as well as three and two and one. Yeah. And when I hit that waterfall, yeah. oh, my, my returns are 100x compared to, and that doesn't have, have to happen. It'd be like when your 101 golfer comes in, right? You, you want a few places, a few places, yeah. and then boom, you get your 101 golfer. And that's sort of what I'm looking for yeah. with the gold markets, right? So one pace away. Do you have a particular one match you're thinking of there where you- where you're betting over four goals or more at nil-nil after 60 minutes? Is that is that an example that happened for you? Oh, it's happened regular. I have it set up in, in the bot, and it's something I do on, on live as well. I, I can actually fire it up and find one from a recent game. But yeah, it happens. Um, I can't think of a game. Yeah. Actually, there's one just before the international break. But uh, we'll keep talking. I'll probably find one and give you an example. <laughs> um, I was desperately you- trying to claw, claw into... Um, Newcastle versus Sheffield United, where did Newcastle win 9-1 or 8-1? What was the Newcastle-Sheffield United match? Newcastle-Sheffield United. Um, Yeah, 8-0. But the issue was we were driving through the Worcestershire countryside and um, I had to get my wife to take the wheel because I just Mm. wanted to get on and get these bets on. But as we drove, we drove in and out of reception. Every single time we came back into reception, there was another goal and the markets had reset. <laughs> I was just, I was getting oh, yeah. really annoyed by the thing because um, it was one of those days I was wish I was sat by the computer and not on the way to yeah. christening and the other side of the countryside. Sorry, I've got, I've got one, yeah, I've got one example. I can't remember who they were playing, but it was Tigres in, in the Liga MX. And I think they scored to go 1-0 or about, about 70. 
And then it was yeah. one, one, one at 90, two, one at 92, and two, two at 96. Crazy. And, and like, I, I, what I, the other sort of, I guess, a hint on this is targeting goals is, is great, but also have a look at what markets might be linked to that. So it might be, yeah, um, it might be opposing the, the winning team or looking at a correct score or the handicap and then splitting yeah. across it. So, you know, the, the, you're giving yourself more outs using a poker analogy. And it and when the perfect yeah. outlands, you're winning across like three or four of those trades at the same time. So that's what I try and sort of do is sort of spread that risk in the market. And I'm looking at mm. a goal is scored. I'm walking away with a profit. But if yeah. two or three goals are scored or a perfect outcome arises, then I'm walking away with significant returns. And that's just, you know, that happens in one in four, one in five, one in 10 games. I'm still doing very, very well. Yeah, yeah. So you're waiting for that game where it all just comes in and it lands. I, I have a sort of similar pre-match strategy that if I'm looking at, um, if I find value in a team to win an over X.5 goals, so, I, you know, um, if it's over 1.5 goals, then I'll tend to have found value in the over 2.5, over 3.5 and over 4.5 markets right. as well. And I'll just want to go for all of them. And do you know what? If it does finish with that team winning 2-0 and only the over 1.5 came in, I might have broken even. Even though I found value, I've broken even. Because what I want is I want them all to come in. And so I'm sort of, it's almost a form of hedging where I could lose everything. But mm. I'm really hoping that the, it ends up that over 4.5 at the end. Because as you say, the, the, the edge doesn't just, if the edge is, exists in one market, it very frequently exists in um in multiple markets as well. Exactly. Like I, I often um, look at the agent handicap and if that's looking good to me, I'll also look at mm, the correct score. So the, I'll try and sort of pair it up yeah. so that I've got coverage in both angles. And can I ask you a question if you don't mind, Tom? What's, you don't, I know you do a huge amount around XG modeling. And what's your views on XG from an in-play perspective while the game's in going? Yeah, that's where um, that's where these decay rates um, are going to be affected by um, the extension of injury time on both halves, for sure. Um, uh, um, it would be very easy to look at a historical distribution of matches. In, fa in fact, I say very easy. It's so easy. We've done it to look at 100,000 matches and see what the times of those goals are in, the, in those matches. And you say, okay, X percent of goals are in the first minute, second minute, third minute, fourth minute. You know how many goals you're going to expect in every minute of the game. And therefore you can take your pre-match expectation, your pre-match XG, and you just decay that as the game goes along. And that's absolutely fine as long as you've had no other information in play. And the minute that the game kicks off, you instantly have some information. Um, somebody's got injured, the, the the underdog is outperforming, um, things like that. And I'm certain, especially, you, you talk about the last 10, 15 minutes of the um, in players being your edge. My edge has often been the first 10, 15 minutes of the game. Um, and I'm going to cite a rugby example for this. I've mentioned it before in the Bashcast, but there was um, uh, Japan versus South Africa in the 2016 World Cup. Mm -hmm. And Japan were 200 to 1 pre-match. And I'm watching the first 15 minutes of the game and they are up for it. It is not as physically dominating as the pre-match price was set at. The scrums are more competitive. Japan are really, really angry. They're fighting. South Africa look poor. They look sloppy. They look scared after 15 minutes. I can't remember if it was nil-nil after 15 minutes. It may have been, or it may have been 3-3 three, three or something like that. But the markets didn't adjust. And that was where I got my edge. I was like, this is they're not 200 to 1 after 15 minutes. Like they're they're certainly not the favorites. Um, and I do find it slightly complicated, especially back then. I can model um, ex uh, 
points expected points to be scored in a match in rugby a little bit better in 2024 but even back then I was like it's not the same expectancy as pre-match and the exchanges still had Japan at 200 to 1 um after 15 minutes and I'm just thinking nobody's looking at this game at least nobody's looking at the game and setting the prices on the markets mm. and so um I took everything that I could and it's probably a little bit of confirmation bias you remember it because it came in I wonder how many I don't remember or because they mm. didn't come in. Um, um, but in that was where I was like, after 15 minutes, the people on the exchanges and also not just on the exchanges, because the exchanges are very much tied to the in-play um, odds offered mm. at the bookmakers. They just had not adjusted it based on what I'm seeing. And I'm really confident that I'm seeing a Japan that is up for this game. And so for me, when I'm looking at a match, I very much consider... Okay, Newcastle are even money for this. After 10, 15 minutes, do they look like an even money team? Because they're probably still around that even money mm. area on the um, exchange, albeit premierships a little bit more efficient in play yeah. than rugby or lower divisions. So, yeah, for me, um, using an eyes technique, using an understanding of sport, I'm thinking t- first 10, 15 minutes is really, really important. After that, I'd be looking at, and I have, I, 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 done in the past decaying my xg and then mm. trying to figure out if from that decayed xg what's the uh, probability of more goals in this game and who are going to get them um and as we mentioned previously this season i don't have a very very large data set to look at the distribution of goals i do not know how many goals to expect in the 99th minute of the match because there haven't been that many 99th minute of matches to look at mm. so for for now, actually, I think that there's a proper edge out there for people that can do this, that are confident that they can look at small data sets and have some confidence in their um, expectancies, their averages and their modeling that can come out of these very small data sets. Because, of course, nobody's got a large data set, not even the, the, the senior traders at Pinnacle, your trenches, mm. um, all the worldwide experts nobody really knows how many goals are scored on average in the 102nd minute of a match that has 15 minutes injury time and because nobody knows this that it certainly feels like to me it's an area for exploitation and edges just not one that i've managed to be able to sort of um um look at in any detail or beat yet yeah i think it's it's fascinating and and if i may there's a few traps when it comes to in-play XG that I, I wanted to sort of share with the listeners because it, it, yeah, it, yeah. they're not aware of them because, um, you know, it's, it's easy to look at those stats and see 1.4 and think, oh, this team should be 2-0 ahead and it's not quite as sort of cut and dry as that. Um, I'll give one example, um, probably showing my age here again, but if you think back to Euro 96 semi-final, Germany, that that miss by Gaza, by, what, by his foreskin, I mm, think he yeah. missed it by, that... Yeah. For you or me or anyone watching the game would be an indication that the goals are coming. Right? I know a goal wasn't scored, but that's a huge chance, right? That goes down as a zero in XG. It doesn't get counted because if the person doesn't connect with the ball, it doesn't go down as a chance. So that's not even in those stats. So that's one example that can, um, you know, your eyes will override what the XG is telling you. Uh, the other thing to consider, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you're, you see a hard time and it's, it's 1-0 and the XG is what have you, check if it's been a penalty. Because penalties will go down as 0.8 as an XG, whether it was scored or missed. So again, that's sort of, uh, it could make a game look like it's going to have more goals when in reality it's probably at the point where it should be because it was a penalty goal and that's overinflated what the actual XG is of those games. Um, 
my analysis, and again, it's limited data, but I've, I've done a fair bit of analysis on it. One goal on FG, uh, XG doesn't really equate to one expected goal. The average for a goal being scored is actually around about 0.6 to 0.7 from the data that I've seen. Um, so really, if, you look, yeah. if you're looking at something that's, that's uh, uh, I don't know, it's, it's 1.5 at half time and it's nil-nil, actually, you're probably looking at that thinking there should have been two goals in this game. So again, that's something that's, that's, that's worth sort of keeping in mind. And it's very hard, right? Because XG, it only really shows when a goal's actually been scored and, and the art in it is trying to predict when that goal's going to be scored, right? So, um, you know, I'm starting to look at games where I want to sort of see one team being sort of 1.5 ahead but not got that goal yet. So that's indicating to me that there's one team that's dominating. That's what I'm going to focus on. And we probably should have had two goals by now. That's sort of what one of the areas that I'm looking at. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I'd sort of mention in here. Uh, yeah, penalties, disallowed goals. This has been a VAR goal, and actually particularly relevant to today. That will go down as a zero, same as a yeah. disallowed goal. So, um, yeah, so missed chances, i.e. what they call, I think it's not connected or this, uh, not a non-connection opportunity. doesn't count. Disallowed goals don't count. VAR don't count. Um whether they should be or not, so open to debate. But so I just be mindful. I mean, you've got, to, you've got to feel like it's amazing that VAR doesn't count because mm. it's almost like that was a goal before VAR. So it it does have some relevancy to the Correct. match. So yeah, yeah so I, you know, it's I would treat it as a trend, and it is useful to have in your Arsenal alongside whatever else it is that you're using. But it's not something that I would use in isolation. So I thought it was just mm. sort of sharing that experience this sort of ties into sort of um the different strategies of doing it because of course we come up with pre-match xg from which we can then decay during the in play Mm. if we want to um whereas i think you're using you're looking here talking about data sources that give you the xg in the um in during the match and there's i don't know i mean i I know flash scores who scored there's a variety that do do it but if you can do that yourself and that's mm-hmm. a, it's a difficult thing to do because a lot goes into it. But um, the, some really good gamblers can use their own eyes and co- and sort of convert how they're seeing the game into an expectation of how many goals should have been scored and could have been scored, can be scored from now to the end of the match based on that. But it's definitely not an easy thing for sure. No, it's not. But in, in effect, that's what we're, as traders, that's what we're, we're, we're doing. If we're watching a game and trying to trade it, you're in, in, in instinctively doing that and now you've got a name for it. But yeah, I think it's a case of like, if you've got that ability and you're, and, and you're able to watch closely and you have that awareness, you can use the, F, uh, the XG that's being published plus your own knowledge. And that is where you might find the actual edge in the game rather than just going by solely by the, the XG stats. Yeah, for sure. Um, but that's a, it's, it's an interesting one. It's just like it's a, it's a confidence in being able to do it yourself. And this brings me on to a question that, um, it, that you and me are going to have biased answers to this because mm-hmm. you and me own data services that we uh-huh. that we make available for people to have. Something I had interesting ha- on Twitter recently is a few people came up to me and um, they were a little bit angry at me um, because I was Twitter? if you like angry? selling really. Yeah, it, well, they were they were they were certainly not happy. I don't sure. know if they were angry, but they they were they were not happy with me. And the reason they were not happy with me is somebody said, um, "Most of us manage to find our own edges, keep them secret, and we don't feel the need to show off and sell them to a group of people." Now I saw that and I was like, "I don't see what I do 
like that. I see what I do as the aggregation of data with some in-house modeling applied to that data. And then if anybody wants to gain access to what I've got, I've got historical results that prove that there is positive return on investment for it. And I don't use 99% of the modeling that goes through bookie bashing because there's so much of it. So it's not like like this would go to waste if I didn't do it. And also it's a it's a capitalist society. It's supply and demand. I've got something to supply. There is demand for it. So, mm-hmm. you know, Mr. Annoyed can be annoyed and say that he never uses the services and I shouldn't sell one. I don't necessarily agree with him. I am biased because I do do it. You also do it through predictology. If you were, do you think our services, predictology and bookie bashing, are for everyone or for a select group of people? Or do you think most people, if they're advanced enough, can run with the ball without using something like what you have and what I have? I think that's a, a great question. And like I, I would, firstly, I would say I've had similar conversations, but I think this is also the nature of Twitter and also the nature of, let's say, um, like we we operate in an industry where it's very hard to shine as something good because there's so much bad stuff that's put out there and it, you know, it, it tarnishes yeah. everybody as a whole. So it's very hard to, yeah. you know, there's, there's healthy skepticism and sometimes that skepticism goes beyond that. I understand it, but sometimes it's like, you know, you've, you've decided before you've actually looked, but that's okay. Exactly. And, and, and there's this presumption that if one thing's bad, everything's bad, but there's no bunk beds in the graveyard. Mm. Um, look, very much like you. I mean, we, we provide a wealth of tools, models, insights. You know, me taking a value bet, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Manila. Me taking a value bet at what is effectively 1 a.m. does not stop you from finding a value bet at 11 a.m. in the U.K., you know, it, it, it might, yeah. we might how we use that data, how we apply it, the advantages that we find um, will probably be different for almost everybody using it. Um, I'd love to say that predictology is for everyone, and I've tried to sort of create something that is quite broad based in that you know it should have something that appeals to most people. But the reality is that uh, there's probably three types of people that that, that do the do succeed and continue with us for for a long time they are the ones that one will come in they have an interest to learn they want to uh, develop their own uh, approach become self-sufficient in what they're doing so they'll ask a lot of good questions Um, they'll take what we provide but then they'll adapt that to their own uses whether that be their risk profile where their their bank management side their interest levels, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, that they'll, and so many of them come back to me and they're doing fantastically well. And that's because they've sort of created something within what we provided for them. And that's working very well for them. And somebody else may have a slightly different approach and that's working really well for them. The other sort of profiles of people we come in who are people who are very much interested in automation, but again, they share a lot of characteristics with that first group. Uh, but they're very much again, very keen to sort of, this is, they take responsibility over what they're trying to do and they're taking ownership of that. They're using the tools that we've got, they're using the technology and integration and they'll develop it out from there and they're patients, they have a long-term view and all of those, those sort of smart characteristics. And the third patch, patch I find which are quite interesting and I'm seeing more and more of is uh, those more traditional advantage play slash value betters who are losing accounts and they're coming with an, with, with an interest and a thirst for knowledge for trading because they feel that that's the closest uh, pillar to move across to, to give them some 
long-term sustainability while they continue where they can in terms of the advantage play. So it's, it's those are sort of three that I'd, I'd love to say. You yeah, know, for it, sure. Everybody, it's it's but, very much a natural progression. If you don't have shops and um, you've lost your soft bookmakers and um, brokers and international is not an option, then exchanges is what you're left with. So I can definitely see yeah. that. And I, I kind of agree with you. Um, like um, for a service like Bookabashing, we try and have a broad range of um, um content so that it can be attractive for those that just want to cherry pick a few value bets but honestly those that want to ask questions and there's no such thing as a stupid question so anyone that doesn't ask a question that's the stupid question the fact that you didn't ask Mm -hmm. it those that want to interrogate and analyze themselves do tend to get the best out of um something like um bookie bash or something like predictology i'd say um um, generally, we have one type of person that we are not for, and it's the kind of person that needs the money to pay the rent next mm. month or is a m- more of a low-staking um, £1, £2 accumulator, and they've put half of their bankroll into a monthly subscription because they think that um, uh, uh, they're going to get these guaranteed profits. In fact, mm. we've sort of identified some of these people in the past and said, you can have your money back because we're not. Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah. Um, so people that. want to find your site what's the website address john uh, it's predictology.co uh, so basically .com without the m yeah www.predictology.co cool so on um website address theme i'm going to finish uh, the bashcast conversation with you with a christmas quiz okay okay <laughs> um i'm going to ask you the top 10 um visit- visited websites as of it says on this article, October 2023, so last month, in the world. If you get seven or more, you win the Christmas quiz. If you get 10, I'll send you a prize. And if you get um, less than uh, five, you're going to have to send me a £1,000, okay? Oh, jeez, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so All the right. top 10 visited websites in the world. Uh, I, I want to just give you a, a, a little hint. I've removed... Um, a Russian one and a Chinese one that you would never get. So other than those two, they're all very understandable. So it's like the technically it's 10 of the top 12, but it's the it's the English language facing ones, okay? All right. Well, as as a as a long-term better, I'm going to play it mm-hmm. safe and conserve my bankroll as best as possible. So I'm going to go for some <laughs> obvious hitters and hopefully I get to that five before I have a few more Okay, curveballs. here we go. Yeah. YouTube uh is number 2. Okay. Uh, Facebook must be up there. Facebook is is number three. Google.com is number one. So you got the you got you got the big three there. Yeah, I told you I was playing it safe, right? Uh, <laughs> my first curveball. I'm gonna say because it's coming up to Black Friday. Amazon.com. There's number ten. Snuck Ooh, in there. Snuck in there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Actually, Facebook split theirs out. So if we've got we've had Facebook, got to be Instagram in there as well, hasn't there? Is number four? Uh, numbers are smaller than I, I always expect, but I'm going to throw in Twitter as another obvious one. Is number five? You've got the one, Ooh. two, three, four, and five. Save my money. Save my money. Can Ooh. you get to? Can you get the last four though? Is the question? Oh, I'm going to struggle with that. Um, are there any curveballs in there? Can you give me a clue? Yeah, one of them I wouldn't consider to be a website um, because it's more frequently used as an app, and I wouldn't have thought of it as a website. Um, okay, okay. That's the curveball um, you're getting there. Is Reddit in there? 
Reddit's not in there, but I have done this quiz to people in the past to my friends, and Reddit was in there. In it there. So had I asked oh. you this, this a few months ago, you would have been right, but not this month, I'm afraid. All right, Wikipedia is number six. Oh, okay. So you don't. You've got three oh. left: seven, eight, and nine. Ooh, you got me now. Let me see. What's the most popular newspaper? It's not going to be there. No, no newspapers. I'll give you a hint there. You've got another search engine. That was too Yahoo. easy, wasn't it? That was too much of a clue. Yahoo. Yahoo. That, was, that was too much of a clue. Yeah, you did help me out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, man. Um, what's the most popular travel website? Booking.com? Not booking.com. I'm going to put you out of your misery, okay? Go on then. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you would have got it because I don't consider it as a website. Um, number eight, WhatsApp. Um, oh. But ah. I said I the never, Facebook I thing as well, gone. didn't I? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I was right. But I didn't think of it as a website either. Yeah, okay. Uh, and number nine, a website I personally have never heard of. I don't know about you, John. X videos. Who knows what that could be about? Maybe I'll oh. go and visit that one day. I'll have so, to check that out after this call. <laughs> <laughs> John Roberts, thank you very much for joining us in the Bashcast today. It's been fantastic talking to you. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having us on, Tom. I really enjoyed it. Gambling and chat. Gambling and chat.